0: Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining, once again live from the Wimbledon Village. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joining me once again is Courtney Nguyen. Hi Courtney. Hi Ben. How you doing?
1: I'm exhausted. Really? I am.
0: It's, we just had a middle Sunday, though. Shouldn't we be real rested and stuff?
1: That's true. I should be. I mean, the fact that you have more energy than I do and you did, like, the Wimble Run sprint yesterday just really speaks towards my lack of stamina and overall heart and guts. I think
0: it also speaks to how exhausting it probably is watching me run. <laughs> Weirdly, it's probably more exhausting than actually doing it's it. It's stressful.
1: I'm, I'm a little worried that things are going to break, that that heads are going to crash, that Ben's going to mm-hmm. eat turf. It, yeah. was, it was brutal.
0: It was It was rough. Terrain was rough, but, you know, it's grass court season. That's what we have to deal with. It's like that every year. So, yeah, it's been an interest. It was actually, since we last talked to our listeners on Black Wednesday, and kind a of fairly calm, really, next few rounds of the tournament, say for one thing today, and let's just get to that one thing. Call right it Manic now. Monday for a reason. Yeah. Well, Manic Monday was a little bit different this year, as I... We both mockingly called it. We discussed this before. It wasn't a coincidence. Man Monday didn't really have the star power or quite the commotion of years past, I don't think, just because so many matches were not compelling compared to most years. Yeah, you felt
1: like you could ignore a certain number yeah. of matches and therefore it made it much feel much more kind of like a quarterfinal day where you could just kind of focus on four matches, four, five, six matches. Even a third like round that. day or something. Yeah, so, so that was... I mean, coverage wise, it was kind of nice to be able to just. Nice, sit and but it's chill disappointing
0: out. in terms of having this be the best tennis day of the year, right. This is always billed. This did not feel like that. No, it did not. Not at all. I mean, you had matches that were like Kvitová, Suarez, Navarro, that were just sort of like open shut. Lena beating Vinci. All that stuff was fairly humdrum. But the big one, we'll get to right away, will happen on center court. First match on center. Sabine Lisicki beating. The French Open champion for the fourth time in her last four Wimbledon appearances, knocking off Serena Williams six-four in the third. Courtney, what were your thoughts as you watched that match? I know we were both at the first set of Laura Robson, so we missed the first set of Sabine uh, taking it six-two over Serena. Then we, I think, that got me out of the stadium pretty quickly. I think you followed soon after. So, what was, what were your thoughts on that match? How it unfolded?
1: Well, yeah, like you said, I didn't see the first set. Once the second set really, I mean, Serena took it really quickly. Yeah. So I didn't actually get to see very much of that because once the time of like getting from one court to another and sitting down and kind of getting all situated and dealing with post-match press and things like that that was already going on, I didn't see a lot of it until the third set. And then even in the third set, Serena had run off nine straight games between the second and third set, building a three-love lead in the third. And at that point, three-love lead, Serena Williams- Grass, Wimbledon. Yeah. You don't think that that's a lead you blow.
0: No, I, I, said, I said in a tweet, it was like, okay, turning off my, my upset alert siren now. I mean, it just seemed very much like she had it in control and that Lissiki had put up a good fight, got off to a big start, but that Serena had recovered. And then Serena just started looking tighter she started guiding the ball into the middle of the court very uncharacteristically. Lissicky was playing better. Lissicky, I don't think her level changed that much through the match. I think it was this was really mostly about Serena. and people, Serena it usually gets, is. Yeah, Serena gets criticized for that in the past for not giving opponents credit, you know, when she loses. And people say this is ungracious of her. But when you can play as well as Serena can, really that's what it comes down to more often than not, I think it's fair to say.
1: Yeah, and I think also... There was a time in her press conference, if people get a chance to read the the transcript, you'll see that she really does go out of her way to give credit to Lissicky. And at one point, you know, after saying it so many times, like she's good on grass, she's won here. She finally kind of was like, come on, you guys, I've said it before, like, get with it. And she kind of like slaps her fingers, which was kind of funny. Yeah. But I began to wonder as as I was sitting in a press conference, how much that played into her mind. Because she mentioned it as well in her match, or pre-match, or sorry, post-match press after her third round match, that Lisicki was really good on grass, that she's won here, she's caused upsets, that Serena had to play her best to beat her. And then she said that, obviously, in giving credit to Sabine as well. But I started to wonder, as the third set unfolded and then during her post-match press, How much that really does play with your mind that you know that this player across the net from you has had the ability to pull off these sorts of wins. And as you feel yourself getting tighter and you're realizing that you're not able to bring out your best tennis, that everything that you're trying to do isn't working because you can't execute, you just get tighter and tighter because... You know, it's kind of like in the beginning of the tournament. But we asked somebody, you know, are upsets contagious? And it was on Black Wednesday. And they said, you know, you start to hear in the locker room that people are going down. So you start to feel like you're vulnerable and anything can happen. I think Andy Murray has hinted to this as well.
0: Andy Murray today talked about going after he went out after Serena and won in straight sets. He said after his match, yeah, I I knew that Serena lost today. I knew that anything was possible. Essentially, if Serena can lose... I could definitely lose. And right, say. and that's going to play into your
1: mind as as you start yeah. to not play well and, and I, I lose it, control.
0: I think it just as much is important for Lissicky, though, for her. She has this weird stat about the French Open thing. She's made quarters now four of the last four times. She's played at Wimbledon. So she had to kind of think delude herself into thinking that she had a chance of beating oh it's just a french open champion on their side of the net it. it's nothing special even if it is you know the number one the serena williams who's been a much bigger favorite at this tournament than any other previous french open champions she beat i mean kuznetsova and ona was not anything special lena was unproven as a grand slam winner at that point and that was a good match i think let's take save match point or match points in that match get that french open sc- winner scalp and then beating Sharapova, Sharapova just looked out of gas in that match. It was also a fourth-round match. Yeah, this was a very interesting performance from Serena. I thought she really just got tight. It reminded me a lot of the match against Sloan in Australia, where it's this match where you it's tight in the third, but then Serena gets off to a lead, and you think, okay, she's got this done. And then she sort of lets the other person back in it and lets them close. Yeah. And it's, it was weird. And this one didn't have any injury explanation like the Sloan one did. The Sloan one was like, okay, she was hurt. She didn't think she was at 100%. You know, maybe part of her was saying, you know, don't fight it. Whatever. This one was a weird sort of uh, tightness and nerves that really, I, I it's gonna be interesting to see how it affects her going forward because this was a not a good loss the way it went down. I mean, losing to Lasiki on grass, obviously you can do worse for sure. Rosano is much worse person to lose to than Lasiki. However, the actual the way, way the way yeah. it went down, losing momentum like that and letting her back in, I think it's got to be unnerving
1: well and i think that it it, going forward the interesting thing to me is how it affects how the rest of the tour sees serena because you go ask everybody you know coming up to this tournament going into the french open back in the clay season who the best player is who's unbeatable and everybody buys into the idea that serena is unbeatable yeah and she had been and she had been obviously you know now going forward this is just a reminder not just to Serena, who I don't think necessarily needed the reminder, because I think she was quite paranoid about something like this happening. But it's a reminder to all of us, the press, uh, fans, uh, the rest of the tour, that Serena can have a bad day. Yeah. She can panic and she can just come out and play flat. And there's no real explanation for it. You know, I mean, I think in the past we've looked at the losses. This would be her fifth loss in dating back to the French Open. So you look at the losses prior to that, they were all pretty kind of understandable. You had the Kerber loss in Cincinnati, which was basically Serena over it and wanted to get to the US Open. You have the loss to Sloan, injury. Yeah. Right? You have the loss to Vika. Vika tough, just played well. Yeah, she played well. It was a tough match. Serena and wasn't I'm, at
0: her absolute best. And I'm
1: missing a loss. That's
0: it. That's it? Okay. That's, That's it. it. She really yeah. hasn't lost that much. Okay. So yeah, so that was really something to see today. And it's just interesting because there wasn't a clear explanation. And her presser, I think, was sort of interesting on that regard. I mean Serena was very composed, but she also was more outspoken, I think, than usual, maybe it's fair to say. And a bit, you know, like we talked about with the talking about Sabine a bit luxury in a way that I didn't find annoying at all. And it's just sort of like, okay guys, come on, here's what the deal is. We're all adults here. I lose sometimes. Get over it. Um, but yeah, I think that it was interesting. It's also interesting. Bring it briefly, how she handled the questions about Annabelle Croft, which I had no idea what those statements were before that. presser. did you, had you heard about that before that? I okay. had heard about it. What, what tell people it. who don't have any idea what it is. No, apparently,
1: I mean, the difficulty here is that, and the reason why I kind of didn't really bring it up is just because there's no direct quotes as to what Annabelle Croft said. She gave, Basically a talk. It
0: was, it was of, Saturday. Oh, it was a
1: Saturday with yeah. like some kind of corporate folk, maybe sponsors, LTA type people like were there. Like a sweet visit kind of thing. Yeah. And so, and apparently she, she took a lot of cracks at Serena's body that she has a huge ass. Like what, I mean, I'm just, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. These are not direct quotes, uh-huh. but just basically kind of, you know. Um, making fun um, of how big her butt is. Yeah. Basically making fun of how big her butt is. And so she was asked repeatedly in her press conference about it. And handled the questions really well, I thought. And the second time
0: that she she shot it down the first time, mm-hmm. and the second time a British reporter tried to bring it up. This is all British people doing this, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, it British was very, t- much, t- it was very much just like, okay, guys, let's talk about you know the racket and hitting the ball and stuff like that, and not this. And so that was a more sort of authoritative Serena than we're used to seeing. And she also gave an interesting answer, I thought, to you for a question that you asked. So don't you say what that was? Yeah, I mean,
1: well? I just was a bit curious. As to her mindset, you know, obviously it's been a really long European season, just generally. I mean, she's gone through, what, 34 straight matches. She never lost. She went through undefeated over clay. Uh She won the French Open that slammed that she had just never been able to really win again. So a huge triumph there. And then she loses to a grass court specialist who kind of... You know, played great and she had a little bit of an off day and she's out of Wimbledon. So I was curious to know whether or not she looked back on it and saw this as a, a stretch in which it was highly successful. In other words, Serena, put like, here's an opportunity for you to tell us to put it all into context. Yeah. You know, and then say, like, look, I had a great season. I mean, it's one loss. So what? And I guess that's kind of what I was expecting was like, you know what? Kind of the question of.
0: I saw Sharapova answer that question last year when she lost to Wimbledon after winning the French. She was like, yeah, that's
1: fine. Yeah. Right. If you were to, I mean, I think Sharapova would have said, if I can almost hear it in my head, if you were to tell me that I was going to win the French Open and like lose Wimbledon, I would have taken it. Yeah. You know, like that sort of thing. And so I kind of expected a similar answer from her today. And I don't know if maybe I asked it wrong or if she just wasn't in the mood or like whatever. But her response was... I'm extremely disappointed. And she looked at me and kind of like glared and a little kind bit. kind of raised her eyebrows. Yeah, it raised her like, eyebrows as though I, what I was asking was a ridiculous question, which is fine. But it, ga- it did... I, it was, I, I, I don't know if
0: it was as much that. It was just sort of like, yeah,
1: deal with my perfectionism. Yeah, maybe you read it that way. I didn't read it that way. I read it more as kind of like a, that was a really stupid question. Of course I'm disappointed sort of thing. Or like, what do you expect me to say? And I was just in my head, in my head responding, I was like, well, I just was trying to See if you wanted to like stop the panic, Because yeah. I do do that sometimes. I will kind of assume, obviously, that or guess what a player's kind of mentality might be. And if you can see the narrative going one way and we you want get a to chance to ask them to yeah. set their own narrative straight. Exactly. sure, why not do it I exactly? Do it do it. Because I think that there is, I don't, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if people are going to panic about this. I don't think it's a panic loss, I don't think it's that big of a deal. But at the same time, you know, if, if she's going to there and say, yeah, I'm extremely disappointed, and yeah, it was all failure, and it was a waste, and da 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 then that's kind of weird to me.
0: You know where Serena goes next? Bastard. Yeah, (laughs) Bastard. So that'll be fun to see Serena back on clay in her natural element nowadays, apparently. Yeah, so that'll be
1: fun to see. You know, who else is in Sweden right now?
0: Sharapova. Yeah. (laughs) I was wondering, is
1: she just vacationing? I don't know. She's in Stockholm. How about that?
0: What do you think the rest of the
1: year holds for Serena? I think she'll kill it on the hard courts. Yes, I mean, okay. I, I yeah. just really don't think this loss is a big deal. I think it's, to me, I see it as kind of one of those one-offs. Like Serena comes in, she plays flat. It just happened to be on this day and that sucks. But right. physically she's good. She's got the intensity. She was trying to fight. She just, for whatever reason, was tight. And I do think that Lisicki had some kind of place in her mind in terms of like, oh, I have to play really good to beat this girl. You know, we'll see. I mean, I, I, I really just don't think it's a setback. Right. It's surprising. I just don't think it's a setback.
0: Let's talk about the woman who beat Serena a little bit more in length. I don't think we've really ever spent a whole lot of time on Sabina Lisicki on the podcast before. What do you make of Sabine Lisicki, Courtney? Let's leave it open-ended.
1: <laughs> I think she's a tremendous player. I think that if she were consistent, that she would be easily a top 10 player, easily. if not top 7. Yeah, um, She's a world beater. I mean, we see that you know, all the time with her. So, and she has no fear. I mean, there is, okay, I just have to say this. The whole idea that because Sabine smiles, like somehow, she's like the smiling assassin, and I don't necessarily mean that in like a positive or a negative way, but she has tremendous swagger. Like, yes. she backs her talent in a way that you don't hear other people do it in press. Maybe Monica Puig. But yeah,
0: <laughs> no, that, was, that was the really striking thing, I think, in today's press conference with Lasicki is how unbashful she was. I mean, people think of her a little bit maybe as a person who smiles and cries and is sort of overwhelmed by her own success on some level. Every time she has a big win, she bursts into tears. It's happened before; it'll happen again. And Which is seen
1: as a hum- like a humility, right? It's, it's perceived like, oh, as she just
0: can't believe she won. But then she comes in and talks about herself with this incredible like, yeah, I'm really, really good. Oh, I'm the odds-on favorite not to Wimbledon for the bookmakers. That's about right. Okay, yeah, that's fine. I'm fine with that. I can win this tournament. I can do whatever. And it's it's this weird disconnect, a little bit, sometimes with her. And the smiling thing is interesting because I think a lot of people that just sort of judge her as this happy, friendly person for the smiling, and not that she's actively unfriendly, but she's definitely not quite as, as, you know, rainbows and lollipops as people make her out to be. Yeah. She's, a, she's a she's an intense, she's intense, intense super person. super intense. Super intense.
1: Super intense and very, in my opinion, in my dealings with her, my sense is that she's quite controlling about how she is perceived. She cares very much. Very calculating. She, it's very calculating. And none of these things are necessarily a bad thing. Like, I think that, for example, a Sloan could probably do better with being a little bit more calculated or intentional about how she kind of crafts her brand yeah. or whatever. Yeah, sure. You know, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just very striking and sometimes off-putting, but like only just because today the press conference was so weird.
0: It was very She strange. beat
1: Serena and, and the first few minutes of the press conference, she was like very what everybody thinks she is, very smiley and very, like, I just love Wimbledon, and it's just the magic of this court. I think the press went on longer
0: than she expected it to. Yeah, and she And she kind of felt like she'd already given her canned answers that she gives a lot about, oh, you know, I've come back from so much. I'm so happy being at Wimbledon. I love Wimbledon. It's really great for me. And then people started asking her about, you know, actually winning the tournament or saying... Serena might have tightened up some in that match. Do you see that? And doing oh, these if, she, things, if you
1: take anything away from her wins, yeah. she does not take well to that. No. That was my theory on the whole how her press conference went, that as the press conference went on and as there were more questions about like, yeah, Serena tightening up or like you're just kind of a prodigy on grass, which I think she kind of sees yeah, like a bit why of a slight.
0: Like why can't you do better on other surfaces? Right. Like, and why and only Wimbledon? She does
1: not take well to those questions. No,
0: she really doesn't. So, I she'll, think that And was, she'll cut you
1: off. Yeah,
0: she will. I think that she gives a lot of very very short answers. I haven't looked at the transcript actually, but I'm guessing a lot of the answers are very Towards very the short. End, yeah, yeah. So that was interesting, and yeah, so it's just interesting to her disconnect because I think people really see her fairly one dimensionally yeah. as this as this girl who has had a tough road and who has had you know a lot
1: injury plague, horrible injury, injuries, injury
0: plague, and it's just sort of overwhelmed by her own success and just happy to be there. That's not no. my read on it whatsoever. Yeah. No,
1: no. And again, that I don't think that that's necessarily a knock. I just, yeah. you know, because it's, it's... just a wrong I want to see people back their talent. I want to yeah. see some of that swagger come in there and be like, you know what? Like, don't cow down to Serena. Don't sit there and say like, yeah, Serena's the best player ever and there was no way I was going to win that match. And, and so I'm just so, you know, pleased that this miracle has happened and like... Yeah, have the swagger, but yeah, I think it's just, I think Ben and I were just kind of talking about, I think the disconnect between how she's perceived and, and what, I don't know, in our interactions, she, yeah. she actually is, she's, she's much feistier than anyone gives her credit for. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And much more, yeah. And has a chip. Herself, has a big chip. Has a big chip. And yeah, and the whole, and just the emotional part of it, I mean, she is very, very emotional on court in a way that is, if you really pay attention to it, if you put together a montage, of, like, all of the times to be in the Sikhi cries on court, it'll be very long.
1: <laughs> She's a crier.
0: She's a crier. And she so stars. I feel like when I see her break down in tears, I was, this was a big win. But when I see her, like, weeping after every big win, I don't know. It's a lot.
1: Yeah, you start to kind of think, like, oh, that's just how you react to, like, yeah. what, you know, some people blow kisses to the crowd. You cry. Yeah, it's your move. That's your move, and that's fine, you know.
0: No one else has it. That's pretty yeah, good.
1: yeah. So I don't know, Ben, is she your number one pick through to the title?
0: That's a good question. It's Sabine Lissicky. She's the makers pick, but not by very much. I think my pick to win this tournament, they all have so much wrong with them. All the possible people That's left. the problem.
1: There's so much wrong. Go. Well, when we were walking back here, you were saying that, like, one of the nice things about how the last eight ended up for the women is that you didn't have a random in there. That's true. and no. Which I would totally agree.
0: Like, that's what, we, that's what we were saying on the way up, is that basically, while the collective field, as, in, as a set of eight for quarterfinalists, really does feel like a kind of off year in Dubai, more than a Wimbledon quarterfinal, none of the individual women who are in the final eight at Wimbledon seem completely out of place. They are all Grand Slam quarterfinalists, all of them, or, at the very least, a top 20 player in Slipkins. Just the only one who hasn't made that. Seven of the eight are seated. The one who isn't seated is Kineppy, who, who we all who we all know. know she's her fifth time in a slam quarterfinal. I mean she's no, no you know fluke here yeah. whatsoever. She's no Kubo.: No, absolutely not. That's the thing. And there wasn't this sort of Kubos or Manorinos or Dotigs who plagued the second week of the men's tournament. And women, I mean, it's a weird field in that the top three aren't there, and they really have been dominant. Over the last 15 months, they've won all the slams and permanent mandatories and the year-end championship and Olympics. All those combined, they hoarded those, just between the three of them. So it's a little more open now, for sure, but it's not quite... It's not... It, I mean, it could be someone weird. I mean, if a Kirsten Flipkins or a Kanepi or a... Yeah, just those two. Those if, if a Kirsten Flipkins or a Kanepi wins this tournament, it would feel strange. Mm-hmm. It'd be like you come into this tournament thing that was not... a possible outcome the other ones who are left they all are sort of you know people who you talk about as dark horses at least so I think that's pretty much fine it's going to be an interesting and I think worthy end of the tournament hopefully uh some good matches that people sort of scale that expectations accordingly for
1: yeah I mean I, I think it's an interesting field I mean it's um as you sit and you break down the quarterfinals and potential semifinals and the potential finals there's just so many interesting permutations. Yeah. You know, and and really match-up issues. I mean, it's actually been quite fun to sit down and try and prognosticate what's going to happen from here on out just simply because you have you know, I think I sent out a tweet about this like you have what is your gut, right? And and my gut says, you know, Petra is the best player in the field.
0: I know that you did a thing for SI down the baseline about breaking down the women in order of likelihood to win. So let's just do that here. Sure. You think the Petra is most likely to win the tournament of the eight? Why? Back back, back that up.
1: I'll back it up. She's a former champion, yep. obviously. She has played, actually. I was impressed by how she closed out that match against Makarova. That was impressive. That was good. You know, she, she's kind of rounding into form. She's under the radar. No one expects her to win here. Maybe now they do. Maybe. But now coming they do. in, no one did she
0: was very much underrated, and she earned her under the radar spot having some really bad tennis absolutely I mean her Horrible. loss to Hampton at the French Open was really disappointing she just had she won Dubai in February but really hadn't done anything since then yeah and she had a really good stretch last year on the American hard courts that she just and then she got beat by Bartoli at epic, epic in the Epic in the Epic fourth round at the US Open and hasn't been the same since she lost badly really badly to Lil Robson in Australia that was a terrible match yeah, and it's been interesting to see if she has what it takes to rise to the occasion, and I think that she does. Cause I was talking to Katie Spellman, who's her PR person, about this, and they seemed and it seemed from what I could tell that Petra's coach is sort of like, putting her side me like Petra, like this is your tournament, see what this draw is. This was before Sina Marina was out, too. You know, they are opposite sides, saying like, you just got to fight for this. This can come to you if you like seize this moment. And I think that Petra is one of the few people who can really be honestly told. If you play at your best, you can beat anybody on any given day. Yep. And especially with Serena out and the other and Azarenka and Sharapova. I mean, that's so true for her. And in a way that I think the only other person who honestly can be told, just play your best and you'll win, maybe in this tournament, still is Lissiki. Yep. Lasicki is the one who has the really big upside, just has never been consistent enough to show it. So I think those are the top two picks to win the tournament, I think, at this point. And I think the odds makers do reflect that. The next pair play each other in the quarterfinals. I think Lena and Um uh, Without breaking down that matchup too much, because that's happening fairly soon, uh, pro- possibly after you listen to this, but maybe not. Yeah. Each of them. How do you rate their chances of actually closing out this title?
1: I put Aga ahead of Lena. Yeah. Um, I think um, number one I put was Kvitova. Two was Lisicki. Three was Lena. I'm sorry. Three was Aga, and four was Lena. Mainly just for the experience, the fact that Aga can play a game. That is effective without going for too much. Yeah. And with Lena, as we all know, and I was telling Ben, and I wrote this as well on um, in my SI preview piece. She is like Kim Clijsters. She is our current Kim Clijsters insofar as she is absolutely lethal. Like she is so such a well balanced game. Forehands great, backhands great. Like she, you know, she can move pretty well. Her serve can be effective, but it can also just fall to pieces. Can completely
0: fall apart. At yeah.
1: any point in time. So and we saw this in, in her matches. She's in the last three matches she's dropped a bagel. So she served a bagel to Vinci, she served a bagel to Kallop. She served a bagel to Zakopalova. Zaccopelova. Okay. She also the Halep and Zakapaluma matches were three set matches. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, it, it, she's just so up and down and, and can go through mid-match lulls. So I have to kind of give Aga's consistency a bit of a bump there. But I think, I mean, absolutely that's the marquee ma- quarterfinal match. It might just even be the marquee match of the, the they're 2 they're, the tournament. They are
0: the two highest seeds left in the tournament. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of sucks for them on that front. They have to play each other. Let's talk about when the other quarters is going on. Talk first about Sloan. Sloan is in the second week. Or sorry, in the quarterfinals for the second time this year. Last American man or woman standing for the second time this year at a slam. I don't think she has been overly impressive in her matches, except for maybe the third set against Monica Puig was pretty great. But, I mean, before that, she really should have lost to Tchaikovska. Mm-hmm. She really could have lost to Pekovic, mm-hmm. And she did well in her first round against Jamie Hampton, yeah. which was a very tough first round. that We should not, you know, sell short. Cause that was a really good one, a third round match. But, but Jamie didn't
1: play well. Jamie didn't play she great. Was she was hampered. She was hurting from her Eastbourne run. So it wasn't the best Hampton.
0: Wasn't the best Hampton, but still, it's a solid scalp, regardless. I just I just don't know if Sloan has the, has shown the upside or the consistency to do this. I mean, we haven't seen anything. She hasn't faced anything yet like she will face if she has to try to close at this tournament.
1: Well, I mean... And Marion
0: Bartoli first. I was
1: going to say, do you rate her ahead or behind Marion for behind, the title?
0: Behind. Okay. Behind. How about you? And same. Yeah.
1: Same. Marion's due. You know, she's due to make another, at least another slam final. She just is. And if not this draw, what draw? <laughs> yeah,
0: seriously. This, is one of, this, is, this is one of those feels like the 2010 French Open. when all this chaos happened. And that was the tournament we got left with. The Yankovic-Soser one semi and the Dementia-Skiavoni other semi. Yeah. And Skivoni was left standing in the rubble somehow. It's the lowest ranked of those four, I think, actually. And yeah, someone, these tournaments are going to come along where it hasn't happened on the men's side forever. But these tournaments are going to come along when things will happen and someone will seize their opportunity. And in terms of seizing it, I really like Marion's, as in terms of being one to just bite onto it and not let go. I mean, I think if she gets through, I think a, a semifinal, a Bartoli quit of a semifinal could be great. Yeah. They played a really good Eastbourne final a few years ago. I mean, just the amount of like intensity and shouting <laughs> no, in that match could be. Really incredible. So yeah. And just power hitting and just lack of movement. It would be wonderful. Grass um, tennis. Grass Let's tennis it. at its power finest. Power grass tennis. At its finest. Yeah. Uh, so that could be really great. Um, the only players we haven't talked about yet, for the rating, the chances are Kanepi. I don't think we think Kanepi's going to win this tournament.
1: I, I don't think a she A lot of things would. would have to go her way. Yeah, a lot of things have to go her way. But at the same time, I did write that, it, I, honestly, it would not shock me if she won. And not because of the funkiness of the tournament. It's It's more just... She has the game to do it. With this field, the field that remains, she could absolutely... Lissiki to could totally implode.
0: She would have to get the right draw. She could get with Siki to implode, which can mm-hmm. happen. She would need to get Lena next to implode, implode also, mm-hmm. which can happen. And then she would need to get Petra or Sloane mm-hmm. to implode.
1: Right. She needs somebody who's not going to make her hit the extra ball. She needs yeah. somebody who can, you know, get their... I don't think she
0: can beat Aga if she gets Aga. Though. No,
1: I think, yeah, Aga I would, I would, I would put ahead of her, but... Things break her way. I really like Kaya, and that's why I rated her ahead of Flipkins, just because I think that a lot of things have to go right for Kirsten Flipkins, even though she does have a two-to-one head-to-head against Petra. I think Flipkins' chances against Petra are not terrible. Yeah. I think No, if they're Flipkins, not. I think it's if not Petra, a joke. No. It's not a joke. And that's the thing about all of these matchups. They're not jokes. You can't ignore any of them. No. You know? All of them
0: could go either way. Yeah. Really, they could. So I think it's going to be an interesting fin to say. Fend of the week, and I think that... Yeah, they definitely, it's going to be a little bit more interesting the next couple rounds, quarter semis, than the men for
1: sure. Hey, it's fun. I mean, I think that it's, it's fun just because I think that it is a roll of the dice across the board. Yeah. So there's not, I mean, there's not really much I can do in terms of like, as a writer. No. Like, I'm not going we'll to see what this happens. crap. Yeah, I just yeah. want to sit back and watch it We've happen. We've been wrong
0: enough times this tournament. Exactly. Let's just enjoy the show now.
1: Darn you, Carlos Suarez Navarro.
0: I don't know what you what we're thinking there, but okay. <laughs> I think it's remarkable she did as well. I'm okay. that she Tchaikovska.
1: did. Tchaikovska.
0: I did have Chakoska like winning this, or making the final anyway, which she should have won that match <laughs> against Sloan. She, she won should've. like eight straight, nine straight games or something. She should have. She really and then just started playing terrible. But then again, that's kind of why Petra Chakoska is not a thing. <laughs> yeah. Fair. I should know that. I should know better. One of the women who gotten the most attention by far in this tournament who bowed out on manic Monday was the pride and joy of England Laura Robson who fell in straight sets to Kaya Kanapi. Courtney, what do you make of Laura's run at Wimbledon? Overall, how do you remember Wimbledon 2013 from the Laura
1: Robson camp? I think the biggest thing was how well she dealt with the pressure. Yeah. Of having to play. What was three I mean, obviously the win over Kirilenko in the first round Unexpected. I mean, that's what Laura Laura Robson just be Laura Robson. That's just what she does at slams. She gets a top seed in the the top half and she pulls off the upset because nobody expects her to win it. And then she crashes out in the next round. Generally, U.S. Open, obviously very different. Yeah, I mean, for her to be able to go through and play two matches where she's definitely favored and to win... Um, And then, you know, play, I thought, which was a good match against Kanepi today. Which was a toss-up match, I think. Sure, it was a total toss-up 50-50 match. So in that way, it was great. It was huge for her profile, obviously, in Britain. I think that some of my coverage, I know for sure, has been skewed towards Laura, simply because I'm in Britain and that's all I see. Everyone's talking about Laura. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And I was talking to one of the the British journalists today, about because I had read something in the papers about how because of the Olympics receding, that Jessica Ennis's profile has actually gone down a little bit.
0: As it should. She's a heptathlete.
1: Fair. But that because of that, that there is an argument to be made that Laura is the highest profile British sportswoman in the UK. Yeah. The British, I've read that. The British journalist I talked to disagreed with that, but she did say that eventually. Ennis. No, she just was, I don't know. I didn't ask her who is, but she just said, eventually, maybe. But if she does something maybe over the summer and backs up her Wimbledon uh, run in the U.S. hard courts and the U.S. Open, then maybe that would really help. But so there's some caution there. But I mean, the fact that we're even having this discussion, I yeah. mean, like, think as about who's it. Not, as someone who's
0: not a British person, I would think that Laura's, I can't think of anybody bigger. And Laura, I mean uh, Jess Ennis, like I said, is in a really, really niche sport that does not matter except for maybe if you think you're an Olympic favorite and you're that desperate for medals. I think she okay. was the first one to win gold in London, or one of the first ones, anyway. After they had a really bad start to the Olympics, Jess Ennis came along and was one of the people who got timing, which was just right for her. Things worked out well for her. Jess Ennis and, and, and just personality,
1: outfits. and she's cute, yeah. and all these sorts of things. So. You know, anyways, but she was, yeah, I mean, Laura's face been everywhere around here.
0: She was on, the, I would go to a newsstand, there were like eight newspapers, and she's on the front page of five of them. Yeah. It's pretty remarkable. So that's great for her. Uh, she gained a lot of Twitter followers. She got a lot of shout-outs from One Direction, which is obviously awesome. I mean, she had a, she had a pretty solid tournament, I thought. Yeah. But,
1: While still being very Laura Robson, which was, she got nervous. She didn't play a great, she was getting blown off the court by Marina before oh, before the crowd. Basically, got into Arakovich's head and yep. she like completely bowed. But to Laura's credit, she took advantage of it and yep. she knew that, you know, she saw choke, it coming. She saw the choke coming. So, credit to her for that. Um, she started nervy against Duque Marino and then turned it around. And then today against Kenepe, she was up a break, served for the first set, played an absolutely shit service game. Yep. Um, and then she was up a mini break and just had to hold on to the mini break and the tiebreaker and served just. tragic double fault really bad the ball may have bounced before it hit the net it definitely did I can confirm that (laughs) I totally remember that before it hit the net
0: yeah so that was not great for her but it's interesting to see how she'll move forward from this both in terms of just her game she's going to be a seed now and also just in terms of media coverage because she was fairly shut down at times the press minus the One Direction stuff which was me obviously Obviously. so I take full credit for that but she also got BBC needs
1: to cut Ben a check because they have been running that clip with his voice in it you should get royalties I
0: really should anyway but it'll be interesting to see how she deals with the coverage going forward because there was some really ridiculous coverage of Laura Robson, especially regarding her not waving or not celebrating after she lost. Can you explain what this was today, Courtney?
1: I didn't really understand it. I mean, I, I, I obviously was back in the press center cover, you know, watching Serena, so I, but I, I had my TV on Laura and I was watching Serena on the other TVs. And as she lost, she was walking off, and I'm, like, looking at her face, and I'm like, oh, she's going to cry. Yeah, she looked really sad. She looked really, really sad, and she definitely kind of had a lip quiver and whatever, and she, you know, had her visor on, ducked her head. She still signed autographs. Did she? Yeah, she signed a few autographs, and then she walked off the court.
0: Sidebar. I think it's ridiculous that tennis players are expected to sign autographs (laughs) after they get knocked out of Grand Slams.
1: Remind me to go back to that point. So, yeah, so then in press, she was asked by a British reporter... It was clearly like a tabloid British yeah. reporter um, Laura, you talked the other day about being self conscious after you win matches and like you like, don 't you haven 't settled on a post match celebration like blowing kisses or waving to the crowd, specifically referencing a quote that she had a q and a quote that she had been given uh, given. Uh, a couple rounds earlier where she said, like, I just really don't know what to do with myself after I win matches. It's not is, like a
0: Sharapova who is, or a Serena who had win so much in front of big stadiums that they had these routines set up. She doesn't
1: know how to salute the crowd after a win. That yeah. was what that Q&A was. So yeah. this is what this question was in reference to. And so everybody kind of looked at each other in the room being like, is this guy really asking her why she didn't blow kisses to the crowd? Like after, after she a loss. Was. So anyway, she kind of looked at him and she's like, well, I lost. I was just trying not to cry. That's, that's not.
0: It's a little too. assertive. it was more like. Sorry. I lost.
1: I was just trying not to cry. It was a very. She was sad. very sad. It was super sad, Robo. It was kind of depressing. Emo Robo. It was emo Robo. But, but
0: well earned. I mean, that's. Yeah. I mean, you gotta want to see that. You don't want to see her being chipper and defeat. No. Or too I mean, this, she she is, had a match. 50, this 50 is a fifty-fifty chance she to won. make the
1: quarterfinals and then play Lisicky, as it turns out. Yeah. Not
0: Serena. No, and she could have easily made the final or won this tournament if she stuck around it. She would have been given a decent shot. Sure. For sure. So that's this my loss on. for her. But yeah, it's just interesting to see how she'll respond. And then there was the article about like, you know, Lore and the Mirror, which is a wonderfully reputable <laughs> publication from what I hear. Wink wink. Wink meaning no <laughs> <laughs> um, saying something like Robson like fails to acknowledge British crowd as she Defends scul- her she snub. Off.
1: Defends snubbing the crowd. And it was just like, Are you serious? And part of what this kind of all I think comes from is what when I was in Eastbourne, she lost to Caroline Wozniacki in Eastbourne. Uh-huh. And as she walked off... As Caroline was giving her on-court interview, victory interview, as you were. Yep. Uh, Laura was walking off-court. And this old woman was, like, leaning over to, like, have her sign, like, a program. And Laura, I don't think, saw the woman. She just obviously was bummed she lost and had her head down. And BBC, though because she's Laura Robson like had the camera fixed on her she walked out and so the image was like Laura Robson ignores this old poor old lady in Eastbourne and doesn't sign little did bbc capture the fact that like the kids signed like a 100 something autographs once she got outside the stadium to go back to the locker room yeah so then in the in, in the post match press conference she was asked again by a british reporter why didn't you sign autographs as you left the court? She's like, well, I signed, like, 200 autographs, like, outside of the stadium. And just this weird... Why are they trying to, like, tear it, her down with this stuff?
0: Like, I, so I, what's stupid. the point?
1: No one does it. It's no weird. one signs autographs when you lose. Roger doesn't sign autograph when he autographs when he loses, and he is apparently the classiest human being on earth.
0: Rafa does it, but even still, I just find it unnecessary. I just don't understand... When people, I don't understand what the obligation should be. Like, you lost, especially at a Grand Slam. Yeah. Like, you're, everything you've worked for for so long just got flushed down the toilet by Steve Darcy or something. Why should you need to stick around and sign autographs for three or four people? I understand people saying, oh, they're fans, singer' from their perspective, whatever. But big picture, like, it's just a weird expectation to have for people.
1: I mean, in porn she was asked, like, like, the BBC mics caught her cussing once. Yeah. So she was obviously asked about it. And then obviously there was a, an article about it. And, I mean, it's just... I mean, I only say all that just because it's like it's amazing to be in Britain. That be a I honestly center don't of think Laura Robson's a big deal. Like, I don't think that, like... But, like, when you're here, good lord. Like, it's just... It's all over. It's a little crazy.
0: So I was just kind of curious to see when Usney was up, like, a set... Or up a break, sorry, against Murray. If he lost what these people would do with themselves because like they just create not something out of nothing constantly. And if both the British people were gone, it'd be much harder for them.
1: Well, I talked one British reporter I was talking to today. I said that they thought that it was a good thing that Laura lost because if she had won, and if Serena had lost and it was her against Lesicki, that Britain would have imploded <laughs> under the amount of ink that would be devoted over the next 24 hours just completely blowing out of proportion this entire situation in Ridiculousness. Yeah. So they were saying, you know, it might actually have been good that she lost because it's like, you know, that stage didn't come. Um, Just in terms of her profile and the pressure that she's put under because it's it's pretty incredible.
0: It really is. We're about 40 minutes into the show. (laughs) So we should probably mention that there is also a men's tournament going on at Wimbledon. But I don't think it bears it really deserves that much mention because it's looking like it's going to be a one-off, a one-off final between Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic. I do think, though, that the men's draw on the top of it has recovered. I mean, yes. the, the four quarter-finalists who were there, on what was the much weaker half of the draw, let's remember, are the top four seeds in the draw. It'll be Novak Djokovic versus Thomas Burdich, then Ferrer versus Del Potro. And then the bottom half has the all-Polish quarterfinal of Lukasz Kubo versus Jerzy Janowicz.
1: Which is basically Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, let's be real. Let's be real, basically. That's what, we were, that's what you, you came for
0: Nadal-Federer, <laughs> stay for Polish people. <laughs> and then and Fernando Verdasco somehow got into the quarterfinals of a slam. He played really well against Golbis. Golbis, this was supposed to be Golbis' spot once things broke yeah. open. And he just killed Golbis, and Golbis was flat.
1: And Verdasco played quite well in Eastbourne as well. He lost in the final to, or not final, the semifinal to Lopez, but um, on a very rainy, wet day. Yeah. But uh, but he's been, I mean, he's been playing quietly well. I think that you know we just kind of ignore him because he's been playing bad for so
0: long. Yeah. And I don't think we had anybody him to beat Murray. Andy Murray had a very very funny reaction in press today <laughs> when he was told that a former tennis player had. Uh, the reporter was like, "I was talking to a former British tennis player, and he said." that he thought that Ferdasco was as good a draw as you could hope for in the quarterfinals of the Grand Slam. And Andy Murray said, whoa, who, who said that? And and the reporter said, uh, Barry Cowan. And Andy just went like... Literal
1: shaking my head.
0: And he just went like... <laughs> just went, just went like oh, <laughs> and like covered his hands and his face with his hands and just sort of stood there just like...
1: He was kind of laughing. He kind was of kind laughing, of laughing, shaking
0: his head, just like could not believe this was the question he was being asked. And he
1: was trying to figure and out it, how to
0: get out of it. And it went on for so long. It was it's not just so for like 10 seconds of him <laughs> face palming about this guy. <laughs>
1: face palming, shaking his head, the whole, all of it.
0: Yeah, because Andy has tweeted before about how useless he thinks the guy is as a yeah. commentator. So it's just funny that he got brought up in this context. Yeah, so that was pretty funny. What won't be that interesting, I think, is the next five matches. I think Murray gets through Varasco easily. Janovic, he should get through easily too. Janovic is a very easy slam semi. Really, when you think about it, he really is. And then Djokovic has a great record against Burditch, even though he lost to him once on grass before. During his slump. Right. And then Djokovic owns Ferrer, and Ferrer owned
1: largely owns Del
0: Potro. So unless Burdic somehow pulls off an upset, I think it's going to be a very, very dull next few rounds. And then we're not going to do a show... Which before, is fine. Which is I fine. am
1: not complaining. Which is... I want to see Novak in 90 in the final. Yeah, but... so let's <laughs> talk about
0: that. Let's just assume it happens. This will be our last show probably before the men's final. What do you? Who do you think wins the Wimbledon for the men?
1: I think it's a complete flip. I really couldn't call it. And yeah. I think they've both been playing extremely well through the first uh, four rounds. I would probably tip Andy Murray simply because just how relaxed he's been throughout the entire tournament. And he's just kind of walking around as though he really does. Not that he doesn't care if he wins a tournament, but that he's kind of over all the pressure of like, oh, you have to win Wimbledon. And I feel like that's all that he really ever needed to do. And I think that he matches up well, obviously, with Novak. And it's just going to... I mean, it's an impossible match to call. I think that it's really about whoever plays better that day wins. That's, That's all. much
0: it. There's no smart analysis no. of that match. It's just I mean, whoever plays better that day wins. I would make Djokovic a slight favor for me in that match. I think he's been sharper of the two. I thought what he's done against Haas and Shardy was really impressive. And so I think he's a little bit stronger of the two on that front. Like we said, it's just going to come down to who's better on that Sunday. Yeah, I think it'll be... Interesting. Hopefully, there are no more upsets for that. Yeah. And otherwise... I think that it
1: will help Murray that he's not playing Roger. Yes. Because that will be one very pro British crowd.
0: Yes, definitely. They, they okay. don't. They're, they like their final Djokovic, but it yeah, but... will be unanimous for Murray. Yeah. For sure. And I think it's been interesting with the crowd with Murray. And people have said this before since he won the U.S. Open. And I think maybe a little bit at the Olympics, too, once he'd already made uh, Wimbledon final. People no longer come to watch Andy Murray matches with a sense of dread. Yeah. They come to see their British hero triumph and romp over, and they're over good. inferior I mean, people. It's been the crowd a, is much better for him.
1: It's been, a, I mean, I think just generally for the Brits, it's been, it's been a very positive crowd reaction, yeah. press reaction to both, like, Murray and Robson. I, the, think was, I think the Olympics did that to them. Yeah, it might have been. It just might have finally, like, infused kind of this, like, it's okay to be patriotic, Britain. Like you know what I mean. Like it's it's okay to like love your guy.
0: Not that their writers ever had any problem rooting for their own players. So
1: fair enough, fair enough. But maybe less likely to tear down. That's probably true. You know what I mean. Not yeah. everyone's all aboard the end. Not right? that they're, not that there's anything to tear down. No. To be quite honest, I mean you know. But I don't think there, there was anything to tear down before either. But they still managed to do it. So you know, I mean, I think that it's it, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I was talking to a bunch of British writers over the last like couple uh, last couple weeks just because I'm always trying to figure out the whole British writing newspaper thing like you know who are the big names in British writing there are so many of them there are a lot but like which ones like set the tone okay like who has like the biggest platform that like you can like say like okay if that guy doesn't like you you're screwed. Because he's just going to, he, well, I was going to say he or she, but no, it's just he's, he will just tear you down every chance he gets. So it was quite interesting to kind of hear that that is something that happens because I don't really know if that's as much the case in the States. Maybe I'm wrong. But I feel like it's a little bit more egalitarian that everybody just kind of like has an opinion and <laughs> it's not really like there's an opinion maker that drives it.
0: I don't think people in the U.S. who write about tennis anyway, obviously, they're, I'm sure they're like NFL columnists and stuff who hold more sort of grudges or biases or people on TV like a Skip Bayless or something at the very bottom of the barrel who do have these clear favorites and people they don't like who they're always trying to mock or whatever or tear down like, you know, LeBron or Tebow or whatever, you, whatever the case may be. I don't think that's so much the case in tennis. I think tennis people in the U.S. are much more really trying to show you both sides of the coin. Mm. If, even if they're, That's why, you know, people do get, you know, hate mail from both sides of things after writing the same piece. So that's, you know, people say that's a good thing. I mean, it just shows, you know, I don't know exactly what it is, but I don't think it's quite the same yeah, I mean, thing I, in the U.S. I
1: get the sense that there are grudges, not across everyone in the British media, but like, Within, like, the small kind of subset of, like, the ones that, unfortunately, have the power to kind of set yeah. the narrative on players.
0: You can definitely see when you are talking about Dan Evans. Seriously. Yeah. Dan Evans, people, they just tear down Dan Evans. A lot of them do the same thing to Baltacha. Mm-hmm. They're not very pro-Baltacha, a lot of them. They take shots at her, for sure. And, yeah, you can see, but with uh, Andy, they definitely don't do that anymore because they need Andy. They need to be on Andy's good side if they want to have a career writing about tennis in this country. Yeah, so it's a definite dichotomy.
1: It is. It is. I mean, I find it fascinating. I really, really do. I can spend hours talking about, like, the Brit Press simply because it's just really different than what our system kind of is. So it's interesting to me.
0: So, Courtney, generally, what has it been like to cover Wimbledon so far? (laughs)
1: It's been good. I mean, it's been grueling. Obviously, with, like, kind of the upsets that were happening in the first week, it's been a bit exhausting to kind of keep your kind of finger on the pulse of everything that's going on across the grounds. But, you know, I mean, our days are typically, like, what? Like, we get into sight like, 11-ish? Yeah. About 11 Nice late
0: starts here. Yeah,
1: which is nice. I don't complain about that at all. So you get into sight at about 11-ish, and I generally tend to be done between 11 and midnight.
0: Because I haven't been that many late matches, but even still, you have to wait for the last press to finish, and then... Write your stuff, write your previews of tomorrow. Wait for the order oh. of
1: play to come out.
0: Order of play, yeah. So it's interesting. It's really interesting. It's very, very clear that when you're there, this happens at every single slam, the last people there, and it's not like a few of them, the last contingent there is the Americans. by far. The Brits clear out of there very early. So do all the other countries. We're not on the same floor as everybody here, but it's the same thing at every slam. It's like the last like eight people there are all... American what is, is that
1: yeah I don't know I mean now that you point it out it's so true I mean it happens at the Aussie it happens I mean I've the done the French open. but it ha- definitely happens at the US I mean I think that again a lot of it does have to do with obviously a deadlines so okay. whichever time zone you're writing for and generally the way that the slams work out US deadlines are always still open or that shouldn't hold in Australia though true but no because then at, the, at Australia when play is over People are just waking up in the States. So then you're filing for like morning, like overnights.
0: Yeah, I think but mo- print people don't do that, though.
1: Print people don't.
0: That's almost everybody, though. So it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly what caused it. I think it's just the work ethic thing, honestly.
1: I do no. I mean, I do think that there is a difference. Like, I think that like, for example, specifically with like the Brits, for example, like they're very much still kind of a newspaper culture. So they have their deadline. They're done. That's it. So they hit their deadline and they're done. They're right. out, right? And they don't care. They don't want to s- stick around and watch tennis and, like, whatever. They're done. They go have their meals. I mean, at the U.S. Open, like, the Brits, because of the way the deadlines are with the time difference, like, they're going to, like, nice meals, like, every evening, like, a proper dinner. Expensed meals. Yeah. yeah like, I'm just, like, always jealous because they're always gone. Yeah. We see this at Indian Wells. Mm-hmm. Right? They're gone. Um, they hit their deadline and they're done. Whereas I know that for myself and I know that for you and maybe others who have to deal with kind of new media... So blogs and kind of more online driven stuff, there is no deadline. No, That's true. just getting something done and you hit publish and it's in. Yeah. So I think that that does drive a lot of it is that the people that we see that are still there, a lot of them are like doing like online stuff or writing for different outlets and things or like that. Or just wanting to feel like you don't want to miss
0: something. That's, that's the thing, that's, that's the thing that I think is a uniquely American thing in some weird ways. I think that Americans, people who aren't necessarily writing, you know, that match, still want to stick around and make sure nothing big happens. You know, even if it's something like, I don't know, a last match at the U.S. Open hypothetical between Stoser and Dementia a few years ago that went late into the night, I feel like people, we weren't there in the press room for that year, but I feel like people who stuck around would have been Americans who just sort of stick around seeing what happens. And yeah. it, the fact that it's the same in Australia makes me think it's more to it than just a
1: deadline thing. No, that's a good That's a good point. I mean, I guess I... Of the writers that I'm thinking of in terms of being, like, the national kind of beat writers of tennis, uh-huh. rarely have I ever seen them leave before last fall. No. They might leave right at last fall where they, like, have their bags packed and they're just watching the, the TV to, until it's done just because they're curious, so they... Whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, I rarely see the whole, like... Oh, Novak Djokovic is playing Richard Gasquet. Later I have a dinner reservation. Yeah. It doesn't happen. That doesn't really happen. No. <laughs> Which yeah, I don't know. I don't know why that is. I have to I'll have to ask around. Now I'm curious. Maybe we're
0: maybe we're just not smart because they all seem much more rested than we are on a daily basis. The other countries? Yeah.
1: Oh for sure. Yeah. For sure. But I think, you know I wouldn't trade it. Well you know what also a lot of it's driven by like the Brits, they only care about Andy Murray. No, that's true. We don't, and they and, don't care about women's tennis. We, at we all. cover,
0: I think America we cover comprehensively covers comprehensively the sport. The sport, yeah. And the other countries don't do that.
1: Yeah, they they write their own.
0: The other countries don't do like features on foreign players it's the way that we do. It's not as like
1: regularly. That. I mean, they no. do. I mean, not in absolutes, but not in the at the frequency that kind of the American yeah. press does. And we could totally be wrong because it's not like I can read Kazakh press or Russian press or like whatever. It's just kind of a general sense. But you know, like when I've been in Rome. I was almost always the last person to leave the Rome, the Rome uh, press center. Just how it goes. Yeah. And part of that's just my own tennis obsession.
0: Mm-hmm. We like really, tennis.
1: Yeah. Not everyone does. That's okay. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Not a lot of people do. People who write about it. Not a lot of people do. There's a very small subset of people that, like, you can get together and, and actually, like, even in your off time and you don't even mean it, you're talking tennis. Yeah. Like, you're having ridiculously stupid arguments And some of them get, tennis. like, so involved in so it. So involved. And that's a very... I will I will say this. I think that's a very American thing. Yeah, definitely. The Americans like to talk about tennis outside of tennis. Yeah. Or they just can't stop. I don't know if they like it, but they can't stop themselves. It's or, like, t- sorry, North Americans. It's I'm a, not just going no, to limit to No, the
0: Canadians are in there, too. I think that they have something I mean we have something when we get you know at a tournament having dinner with people who are other writers it's something we have in common the tennis stuff I and mean, it's why we sort of have the podcast really it's like we talk about tennis because we like tennis and it's something we enjoy talking about it's the common language we speak that not a lot of other people in the world as a whole are fluent in
1: and it's something fun to debate I mean I yeah. just like I like debating and arguing things anyway yeah so when you take something completely harmless like a like a sport and you argue the, the shit out of it with, like, your friends, that's fun.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's got very meta all of a sudden. Sorry.
1: It's okay. Just saying.
0: Last thing we want to talk about on this show is a documentary that's coming out Tuesday night on ESPN, a 30 for 30 series installment. It's part of the 9 for 9 sub-series of that that's dealing with Title IX and issues in women's sports. It's called Venus Versus. It's re- directed by Ava DuVernay, I believe is her name, and it deals with Venus Williams and her role in the campaign for equal prize money at the Grand Slam, specifically Wimbledon, which finally went into effect in 2007. Uh, we have both seen the movie. Now, Courtney, what did you make of it? What should people expect?
1: I, I really liked it. I thought that it was, A, I mean, just really well done, well produced, um, visually really striking and interesting, just kind of how they... I liked the kind of as the years went by, like the kind of showing the disparity yeah. in the champions at, at Wimbledon, which was which was quite good. And you know, to be honest, there was a lot of stuff in there that, that I I prob- the detail that I didn't know. Um, specifically, I think the best part is is when they interview Venus and Larry Scott, former CEO of the WTA. Yep, they actually discuss what was the the discussions. Um, at the kind of meeting that it took place in 2006? 2005. 2005, sorry.
0: Meeting of the Grand Slams happened on the eve of the women's final, which Venus played at Wimbledon 2005. And yeah, just sort of, we won't spoil too much of what happened Yeah, but they they get into it, and I had never
1: really heard that before.
0: No, so that was pretty cool. I think the whole thing, he talked a lot about Venus... Venus, and it was interesting, it was Venus, and it very rarely mentioned Serena. Yeah. It was not them as a package whatsoever. This was Venus as Venus. This which I Venus, appreciated. Yeah, because she's her own person. So I think seen the, the Venus and Serena documentary, which really I think was largely dominated by Serena, probably fair to say. Yeah. I think it was really interesting to see Venus get her own spotlight and to be, it was a bit of, you know, Venus propaganda and sure. her, making her the hero of this thing. And I don't know how much, if at all, it overstated her role and what things were. It's possible that it did. But I think that it was it was fun to watch and the archive stuff, the early Venus career stuff, all the bead stuff that comes in, I thought was pretty yeah. cool. And yeah, it was just a um, a very cool sort of thing. And thirty for thirties, we I think we like yeah. as a series for sure. Venus sure. fans and a lot of good stuff for them. It can be hit or miss for sure, but I think this one, especially for tennis fans, is a is a big hit.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's pro- I, I think that it's the best. Well, you know, if you were to ask me, I would say that it was the best tennis te- thirty for thirty as of the three. Yeah. So the three would be Venus versus, there's Renee, and then there's Chrissy and Martina. Yeah. Right? Chrissy and Martina, one friend? I did not like. Yeah, that was fluff, and it was weird, soft focus, Barbara Waltersy, and you don't learn a dang thing from it. Renee is really, really interesting. If you don't know the, the story of Renee Richards, you know, has a lot of interviews and footage and things, but it's a bit more gritty in terms of how it's kind of the production value. Yeah. Which, But Venus versus was just, it felt Very modern. Slick, yeah very slick, very clean I thought it told the story really really well it didn't dally uh, you know dilly-dally anywhere. And I just thought that it was really nice for what you said like for Venus to get her own platform because I am one of those people who always really does get annoyed when the Venus and Serena narratives get thrown together even though obviously they're in you know inextricably related but yeah. that Venus kind of gets thrown in and and gets kind of the Serena accomplishments when she shouldn't. And then Serena gets kind of some of the, like, off-court accomplishments hype that she kind of shouldn't. Yeah. And I think that when you actually do combine them together based on how different their legacies are, it kind of just tarnishes both. Yeah. And I think that especially with respect to the off-court stuff with Venus, like, she does deserve to stand alone. And and really, you know, the bottom line is that she had that meeting, not Sharapova, not any other player. I mean, she was the one that kind of stood up, and even if her role in the whole process was, like, overstated...
0: Or oversimplified. Or oversimplified.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, or over-exaggerated. Like, maybe it didn't have any impact. And maybe it was more about the letter-writing campaign to Parliament. and you Or know, inevitability. Or inevitability. But, hey, she's, it doesn't mean that it wasn't like...
0: The Venus doesn't deserve some credit. Exactly. So I think it's a fun, let's watch, I think. We encourage everybody to yep, go watch absolutely. It. You know, pay respect to your local... Women's tennis uh, viewing establishment do that. It's interesting that all the 30 for 30s that have come out for tennis, the three have all been women's Mm -hmm. tennis. If you're going to make a 30 for 30 about men's tennis, what would your topic be? Now, The rules for 30 for 30 has to be something since ESPN started. So a post-1979 story. And most of them are really pretty compact things. They're usually pretty small.
1: I have to think. If if you could get the access, which is always the issue with 30 for 30, uh-huh. is access, getting players or personnel to actually discuss something or talk talk about something openly, uh-huh. I have to think there's a good 30 for 30 you could do on Monica Seles. Okay. And specifically that incident, the stabbing incident. That's good. I think that that would be really, really... I mean, if I think it's impossible because you're never going to get Steffi Graf to talk about it and you can't do it without Steffi.
0: Yeah. Speaking of doing things without Steffi, what do you think about Steffi not being here for the WTA40 celebration? that just happened.
1: I think it's weird. I think that it's especially awkward that she wasn't at the thing because she was cited as the idol, the inspiration for like by most anybody that's in the current generation of players. Yeah. And my understanding is that she just really didn't want anything to do with it.
0: No, she didn't come to the thing in Charleston either that had a huge platform of of former WTA legends. I had Tracy Austin, Chris Everett, Martina. Venus showed up after she, got, after she lost in the tournament. And it was a really star-seted dais there. And Hingis was at that one in mm-hmm. Charleston. Graf was very noticeably not there. Uh, yeah, so I think it was, it was interesting. For the 30 for 30s, if you had a men's 30 for 30. Oh, sorry, men's. That's what I said the first time. Sorry, I, like your, I thought you I like just your, said 30 for 30. I like okay. your answer. I, I don't know. What's your men's one? I'll, I'll come up with the women's one too. Want well, my men's one first? Oh Yes, you go. My men's one would be Isner Mahu. Ooh. I think Isra Mahu is just a good sort of 30 for 30 topic. It's a tight thing. It's a lot of good footage of it. You can sort of play out, you know, what was going on in the... Game during it, I think a few other things happened that day. You could do like a if you like wanted to, like the ninety like the with one OJ chase, yeah, thirty for thirty. Because I think the same time that happened, the USA had that really really overrated win over Algeria in the <laughs> World Cup, where they were like choking like dogs and they got credit for finally scoring at the end. I think that's fine. I think that would be. I think Isner Mahoot is my pick for thirty for thirty. Talk to Mahoot. Talk to Isner. Yeah, mostly talk to Mahoot, <laughs> and I think it would just be a
1: solid one. I wouldn't mind. Seeing a 30 for 30 on Roddick Federer Wimbledon final. Okay.
0: Same basic idea
1: then. Basic idea. Yeah, same basic idea of just like one simple match, but just everything that was kind of, or even the Murray Federer one last year, but that doesn't have the, uh, I mean, it has, I think the Murray Federer one actually has more historical significance just because of like what happened with Federer, like what that one win meant. But just the, the Roddick Federer final at Wimbledon. What was that? 2011. Oh nine. Oh sorry, two that. Wow, That was that long ago. 2009. It was. It was. A tr- it was just such an interesting match. I think there were just so many different storylines that you could go with it. And do the sort of
0: background. Of the, the, whole, background ro- the whole Roddick, essentially. Um, yeah,
1: so that's the background good, is key. Yeah. I mean, it was. It would be really more about the background than the match in and of itself. Yeah. But just the idea that like Roddick held serve for God knows how long, and it and, wasn't enough. And it wasn't enough. And that to me is so tragic. That, to me, is when things turned for me and Andy Roddick. Because I never really enjoyed watching him play. His bombastic personality was just not my cup of tea and all that sort of stuff. And then when that happened, I was like, oh, okay, I like you now.
0: Yeah. Other topics who I think would be good for 30 for 30s, for the men... Let's see one on Daniel Kellerer. <laughs> if you, anyone could get a talk or access, it would be a very hard one to actually produce. That man is crazy, and a lot of people have stories about him because everyone hated him. Every person on the Challenger Tour could not stand Daniel Kellerer.
1: Right, the so, most hated man in tennis. Yep. Basically.
0: Him and Odesnick, yeah. yeah. So that would be a decent story. Odesnik, I don't think, it would be that interesting.
1: Well, an interesting thing is if you could do a 30 for 30 on betting yeah. in the Challenger circuit. That'd be good. So complete no-names and yeah. go down to Challengers and Futures Match and fixing you,
0: kind of stuff, yeah. yeah. but
1: if you did it the right way and you got the access, that would be awesome.
0: Could be very good. Other things... A women's story for me... Oh, how about, like, uh, Downfall of Capriati? Ooh. Downfall of Capriati could be good. good she could be a good 30 for 30 candidate mm-hmm. right there.
1: And she has an ARC because now she's in the Hall of Fame. So it's, like, kind of a weird, like, bad girl, you know, It's a weird datumon to goes... it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: Exactly. So I think that's my pick. So oh, okay. if anyone else has suggestions... Let us know on our Facebook or on Twitter. Happy to hear it. Happy to have people, you know, from ESPN come along and steal these ideas if they want. We're, we're <laughs> Please, do Please, Please do it. Please it. do. We're happy for more tennis. We're coverage. unpaid
1: researchers for ESPN anyway. Always. Always.
0: Always. So we'll leave you guys with that. There's a special well, I was waiting for Courtney to finish up today, I made a special four song outro in this uh, in, for this episode. So if you can tweet us and identify all four artists. Who are used who have a common connection in these songs? If you can do that, uh you'll win like our eternal respect and a shout-out in the next show.
1: And maybe something. We have Wimbledon Swag. We do have
0: some stuff. Courtney has some stuff.
1: I have some Wimbledon Swag.
0: So there you go. Yeah. Have a good one folks.
1: Late Boom boom boom, now let me say, say
0: weo.
1: Boombox can change the world You gotta know your limits with a boombox But this was a cautionary tale